Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and this is the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, we're going to discuss whether schmaltz is necessary, and I don't mean the chicken fat that you eat at Sammy's Romanian on the Lower East Side in New York. I'm talking about schmaltzy art. Think Love Story. Think Jonathan Livingston Siegel. We're going to talk about Citizen Four, the film by Laura Poitras about Edward Snowden that is now available for viewing on HBO and was just awarded an Oscar. One of our favorite authors, Judith Freeman, will be here to discuss the Rachel Cusk novel, Outline. I'm here with Tom Lutz, who is just back from trying to find a lost city somewhere in Central America, looking no worse for the wear. Yes, uh, Honduras, and we found it. And critic, writer, and gal about town, Lori Weiner. Hi, Seth. Hi, Lori. Let's get started. (laughs) Let's do it. I was listening to uh, one of my favorite podcasts, All Songs Considered, on NPR, and they were doing a Valentine's Day show. And invariably, when you do a show about love songs, there's going to be some schmaltz in there. And they asked the question, is schmaltz necessary? And they didn't answer it. They just asked it rhetorically. And I thought, wait a minute. Let's have that discussion. And I thought it would be a good thing to discuss with you guys today. And do you have an answer to it? Yeah, I think schmaltz is necessary. Because from my perspective, schmaltz is the gateway drug to the arts. You don't start out liking the wasteland. You might start out liking one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Although I don't mean to imply that Dr. Seuss is schmaltzy. But I mean, you might like, as a kid, a sentimental poem because you're not a critic and you enjoy the rhymes or perhaps the subject. But the simplicity of the worldview is not bothersome at all. Lori Weiner? Oh, I was just wondering, Seth, if you were at one of your kids' weddings and they played Sunrise, Sunset, do you think you would cry? I would weep and hate myself for it. I think because you're too sophisticated to weep. Well, you know, it's funny. There's a saying, all gangsters are sentimental. And I I think I connect to that on some level. You're such a gangster. Being the the emotional gangster that I am. Well, here's my question. The recent article on psilocybin in The New Yorker, the epiphany that most people seem to have on that kind of drug is love is everything. Love is all. And you could say that that's the lesson in almost every great work of art. So it's all the same lesson. It's just at what level do you make the audience feel its profundity that determines whether it's schmaltzy or not? I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. I don't know. The critique of schmaltziness in 19th century American literature, right? William Dean Howells has one of his characters who he doesn't have a lot of respect for reading a book called Tears, Idle Tears, right? That's a funny bit. And Twain has... Uh, Emmeline Grangerford in Huck Finn, who writes poems to people who die who she's never met, right? <laughs> and uh, and and I I, I looked this I just looked this up and and uh, Huck Finn says, boy, if Emily Grangerford could make poetry like that before she was fourteen, there ain't no telling what she could could have done by and by. Buck said she could rattle off poetry like nothing. She didn't ever have to stop and think. It's, it's a great critique. Huck and Finn, literary critic. That is part of the critique of, of sentimentalism is always that it's really unthinking, that it hits your heartstrings without hitting your head. Laurie, I have a question yes. for you. I have to bring up the Nazis because I think we're contractually obligated they were to, very sentimental. to mention the Nazis every week. But my question is this. Why is it whenever a dictator is toppled, whether it's Saddam Hussein, whether it's Hitler, and the cameras go into their palaces or Berchtesgaden in Hitler's case, 
the art there is invariably the most sentimental, kitschy crap imaginable. So true. I I think of Ceausescu. Yes. Am I pronouncing that the, properly? Ceausescu. Ceausescu. Who was the dictator in Ch- R- of Romania. Romania who was brought down in 89. Right. When they went into his palace, it's all silver, mirrors, white fur. It's somebody's idea of Versailles, right? Right. So, so all dictators, we can say, I, I will posit all dictators have bad taste. Why is this? What is this that drives dictators to have this egregious Wait taste? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're you're just equating sentimentality with bad taste. That's the same thing. Well, not necessarily, because now now we're moving off in a bad taste, which is its own thing. In oh, a way. Okay. But also partly sentimental as well. I think. I think. It, well, because they have no souls. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So they have no souls. I would say rather they they have no souls. There's they have incredibly shallow psyches that don't allow for reflection, that don't allow for complexity, that not only don't allow for it, that abhor complexity of any kind. And they want the most simplistic things to surround themselves with. It's also a well-known fact that they have no sense of humor. And that is a well-known fact. And I think that's related. Oh, because the sentimental is is humorless. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Against your better judgment, you've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, Putin has no ability to self-reflect? Is that... I would say Putin has very little ability You've to self-reflect. You've seen that picture of him on horseback with the Yeah, that, that was a PR disaster, but I, I'm not sure it's... I, pro- I promise you A PR disaster, but he, he wanted... He, that would not have been out there to the extent it was if that wasn't his ideal idea mm-hmm. of himself. I would I would lay rubles on... So that's funny. His, I bet I bet he has a an oil portrait of that image somewhere right. in one of his residences of himself on that horse. Um, how many rubles? Yeah. Oh, remember oh, that episode? Many, many, many rubles. <laughs> remember that episode of The Sopranos where Pauly takes this painting of Tony as a general and puts it on his wall? Oh, yeah, with the horse. And Tony yeah. sees it and he thinks that he's being made fun of. <laughs> and he goes nuts. Does that speak to Tony yeah. Soprano's sense of irony? So he's he's this, a, a different kind of dictator. The whole point of that show was he was against type and he was against type because he actually had feelings and was he re- actually had re- self He was reflective, exactly. Yeah, right. But is it fair to say that one man's schmaltz is another man's art? Let's uh, let's get really pretentious for a moment to find what what we think the function of art is. What do I we mean, think it, the function of art and, is? And also, I mean, the, you, on the you know, radio hour. Let's historicize it a little bit. I mean, uh, Peter Paul Rubens, uh, you know, that's schmaltzy, schmaltzy stuff. There are forty-seven rooms to him in the in the Louvre. That is schmaltzy. You're right. Right. And is that not art? Of course, it's art. Oh, you stopped the conversation in its tracks. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't like it. I, don't, I, I get nothing out of those paintings. I'm not a fan. But. Yeah, you, Renoir is in that tradition as well, to a certain degree. Mm. His pretty pictures, you could say it about Monet to a degree. Although Monet pictorially was more, he was doing more sophisticated things ultimately than, than Renoir was. And so sentimental is the opposite of sophistication now. Yeah. Our musicals art is carousel art. The Rodgers and Hammerstein musical? I think Carousel is absolutely art. I think uh, we've, we could talk about whether The Sound of Music is art, but uh, Carousel certainly is. Is schmaltzy, right? The Sound of Music is probably the schmaltziest of the musicals, but that's because Hammerstein was old, he was dying. They're, what they were doing was being calcified into a form that they no longer themselves felt, possibly. Now, what about the word itself, schmaltz? Well, schmaltz is chicken, chicken fat. fat, right? Yeah. yeah. It's Yiddish for chicken fat. And it's delicious, it is. right? It's, it's delicious. the way you make stuff and delicious. And it's bad for you. 
<laughs> which pretty much describes how Schmaltz yeah. affects a six-year-old. Yeah. I think it, it's great. It goes down the gullet remarkably easy. And if you don't develop a more sophisticated palate, you have a heart attack by the time you're 12. I want to talk about how writing about disease is a very difficult thing to do without veering into very, very schmaltzy territory. And when you think about certain things, certain books or movies that are about people who've gotten sick, and I'm thinking Terms of Endearment, for example, gets incredibly schmaltzy when Deborah Winger is dying of cancer. There's a movie, I don't know if you guys saw it, that Julian Schnabel directed, based on a book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Oh, yeah. Sure, yes, About a guy who has locked-in syndrome, which is about the worst affliction you can imagine. He literally can only move his eyelids, and he dictates a memoir with his eyelids, essentially, to somebody who comes to understand what he's trying to communicate. And the movie is beautiful and the opposite of schmaltz. And this guy has an affliction that is unimaginable. And it's why Julian Schnabel is a great filmmaker, I think. And in the hands of anyone else, could have been incredibly schmaltzy. Unbelievably it's a schmaltzy. set up for schmaltz. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, was my left foot schmaltzy? Great question. I don't think so. Because I think Daniel Day-Lewis created, this is, by the way, the second week in a row we're talking about my left foot. I know. Which uh, is now becoming like the Nazis. We should really talk about my right foot because it's feeling <laughs> neglected. <laughs> but no, Daniel Day-Lewis created in Christy Brown, the character he was playing, a really fully realized human being. And for that reason alone, I think the complexity there uh, was able to push the schmaltz out of the room for the most part. What do you think? Do you think it was schmaltzy? I, I never saw it. Oh, there we go. Sorry, I'll, I'll try to watch That's it. That's your That's never stopped us before. <laughs> That's true. I did want to just mention uh, Rod McEwen because he died recently. Ah, yeah. And now he was a great master of schmaltz in the 60s and 70s. I guess the 70s were really his decade. Seth and I were very familiar with him. We had his poetry in our house, as also Bourbon Holmes did. We had his albums. Tom doesn't seem to have heard of him, but that's... <laughs> That's neither here nor there. Of course I've heard Tom was living in the woods. (laughs) I've never actually read him, and uh, I did not have any of his albums. Okay, well, I want to read just six lines from a very typical Rod McEwen poem, which I think will tell you why he's schmaltzy and also why the middle class thought that he was more something more, that he was really a poet. Okay, six lines. I wanted to write you some words you'd remember, words so alert they'd leap from the paper and crawl up your shoulder and lie by your ears and be there to comfort you down through the years. But it was cloudy that day, and I was lazy, so I stayed in bed just thinking about it. So the, so the first four lines are... <laughs> Where to begin? <laughs> okay, I'll start. So the first four lines are like Reader's Digest, right? And a da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Just like it's the poetry that the woman writes in Huck Finn. And then the last two lines are like, oh, it doesn't rhyme. And it's not what you'd expect the person to say He's next. And so modernist. Exactly. <laughs> yes. We should play a little clip of his that, we should. that you we played should. me earlier. Let's, let's do that now. He's the Celine Dion of poetry, I think it's fair to say. If you go away on this summer day, then you might as well take the sun away. All the birds that flew in the summer sky when our love was new and our hearts were high. <laughs> okay, let's pause at that. 
But what about the history of sentimentality? I mean, the the, the sentimental man, you know, the 18th century Lawrence Stern uh, and, and Flaubert's sentimental education, these ideas that sentiment is superior to the brain. This is this is something that has adherence beyond, you know, fans of Rob McEwen. The, the kind of revolt against emotion in the 20th century, the whole idea that you get rid of emotion and that's the kind of way forward for the race. That's that was a little weird blip in the history of the culture of emotion. Well, yeah, and it it was a, I think a direct result of what happened in World War One and the the epic slaughter that occurred there, which made people look at life in a very different way. And it was hard to be sentimental when I think the face of the existential void was revealed. But what happened is eventually that became occluded, and sentiment returned with a vengeance. Sure, or it's simply the industrial revolution and you're trying to organize a bunch of workers in huge workplaces um, and you don't want people weeping and gnashing teeth and you want everything regulated. And Although the art we see in totalitarian societies is invariably sentimental art. Is it really? Like sure. Socialist realism? Yeah, is, is absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, interesting. I it's completely that. sentimental. It, it, it brooks no complexity. It's everything is in service of the state and the idea. And there's nothing there except this very, very simple notion, which is the definition of sentiment, really. When you see them, I'll be there. We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun. But the hills we would climb were just seasons out of time. Judith Freeman is here to answer the question, what have you been reading recently? So I just finished reading Rachel Cusk's new novel called Outline. And I was so taken with it. I felt like I was reading something really fresh and new. And part of what seems so fresh is I was reading a novel in which the first-person narrator almost completely is effaced. You learn nothing about her. But what you do learn is a lot about the people around her. And it's really the story of a woman, a writer, who gets on a plane to fly to Athens, where she's going to be teaching in a writer's workshop. And from the moment she gets on the plane, we really know nothing about her. But she sits next to a Greek man. Suddenly, he begins telling her stories. And you realize this is a novel in which the narrator will become a conduit to other people's stories. We will learn almost nothing about who she is. But the way she's able to extrude the stories from everyone around her, whether it's this Greek man she meets on a plane, or one of the men, her fellow writer, who she's going to be teaching with, or an old friend she encounters again in Athens, or a friend of the friend who comes and meets them for drinks. And the stories are so rich and so compelling that I found myself thinking, this is a new way to think about a novel, in which we have a first-person narrator, but she almost doesn't matter, because what she's doing is bringing the world around her and the people around her to life. And the other thing I felt about this book is that it has such adult wisdom. It's so smart. It's so wise. And that's something I'm not finding in a lot of novels right now. She was born in Canada, and she lives in the UK, but she spent her childhood in Los Angeles. 
Did you know I that? didn't know that. Yeah. She seems so English, and she's won a number of prizes. I think uh, she won the Orange Prize, maybe, for her first novel. She also has Whit, written three Whit, memoirs. Whitbread. The Whitbread Prize, that's right. What's interesting to me about her being a memoirist and then writing her new book is that she's gone from completely uh, this this revelatory style of writing to this utterly anti-revelatory style, which is fascinating, really. Yes. It makes me want to read the book. Yes, yes, that's so interesting. I hadn't thought of that. But here you are where you're revealing everything about yourself. Your marriage, one book was about her divorce. One book was about uh, raising children, becoming a mother. So it's all about you. And then you write a novel in which you're able to really stand behind this, this grim. Last week, HBO started showing Citizen Four, and uh, we all just saw it recently on HBO. Maybe it was a case of a film being overpraised before you see it, but I was disappointed in it, although I think it's unquestionably important and amazing that we get to see this live history unfolding as it's, as it's happening. But beyond that, I wasn't sure what it achieved, and the filmmaker, Laura Poitras, to me, even though she used scary music and filmic angles to convey the sense of the scariness of the entity of the state that's out of frame, I felt that it didn't really tell us anything beyond what was on the surface. That is how Edward Snowden sees himself, which is exactly how she sees him. They're totally embedded together. And I felt a real need for some kind of perspective or other arguments. I would don't, I guess I disagree. I think that the it's not a visual story by its very nature, right? It's a it's a conceptual story. It's about coding. It's about it's about electronics, um, right? It's about electronic surveillance. So that's there's not much in the way of visuals there. She does manage to get you know for given that fact, she does get manage to get an incredible number of different visual things like that opening montage of the bulldozers building that enormous thing in Utah in order to to uh, store all this data, to have all the computers going. Mm -hmm. That was very impressive. And she just hung on that image of the bulldozer digging and digging and digging. That that was great. Also the, you know, kind of him taking apart the phone and taking out the devices that can, in the phone. Uh, uh, she managed to find some visual interest. I thought the filmmaking was actually terrific. And, and the best part of the movie was the filmmaking. I don't think she elucidated much in terms of Snowden's character. Or I think uh, I think he came off mostly as a cipher. Interesting. Did you see that? Snowden, you'd... You didn't get him as a person? I got what his view of himself was. But oh. I felt that, you know, obviously a lot of people think of him as a, a hero and very uncomplicated hero. And I have a feeling it's not uncomplicated at all, the situation, the psychology behind martyrdom, essentially. He did use the... Um classic martyr martyrology in his self-description is true absolutely and um, now you want you know you, they should nail me to the cross not my friends that kind of thing the problem for me as as a viewer was that the director laura poitras 
hitched her own point of view directly to that of Snowden, which made for me a much less interesting film. She didn't challenge him or question him. I think she just saw her role as presenting Snowden yeah. as if on a slide and furthering her own agenda, which is his agenda. And by not doing a, that. Yeah, exactly. And not a slide completely because it's not a scientific portrait. It right. Was, right. We know now that Snowden had a bunch of, you know, Tea Party-ish anti-government sentiment, not exactly left-wing anti-government sentiment. So he is a more complicated figure than she let on. She didn't really have a choice in a, in a way. I mean, she had to buy into it completely oh, absolutely. in order to have the access that she had. And, and thank God that she did. I mean, it, what a great service bringing him out, I, she and, and Greenwald together. I, I completely agree. She did do a, a fantastic service. I'm curious, why did you guys, Tom and Laurie, why did you think the film won the Oscar? I was surprised that it won the Oscar. I'm surprised all of it surprises me. It surprises me that he's still alive, that he was able to do what he did, and you have to give it to him. He handled it in an extremely smart manner. A lot of people have tried to whistleblow on the government and have wound up in jail. The way he, he constructed the Russia. whole thing. What? <laughs> he's just in Russia, right? Yeah, he's well, kind, of, kind of jail, I'm sure. And, um, you know, I think he's very smart. I don't think that he necessarily knows why he is the way he is mm -hmm. or why he did what he did. But also, I'm also surprised that so little has kind of happened as a result of what he did. That is, he's free and walking around, albeit in Moscow. And people are not that upset about the fact that the NSA is spying on all of us. And I'm not that upset about it. I know a lot of people are, especially, of course. you know, but I kind of assumed they would be after 9-11. Not that they would be spying on all of us, but that they would be scouring every communication possible. That was well, not a shock to me. Well, I think a lot of people are uh, agree with you. And I think the misfortune of the people who want to cur severely curtail government surveillance is the fact that ISIS seems to be right now uh, speaking very much against that kind of thing. When we see the vividness of the murders and the marauding they're right. engaged in across the Middle East, I think if people think that the government is going to read their email, it's not that big a deal, ultimately, if it means that they'll be catching people who might do harm to uh, the homeland. This is the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the LA Review of Books. It's also smart of him to act as he did under the Obama administration. Imagine if Dick Cheney was in office. They'd be searching him out in they Russia would, right they now. They would kill him. There is you know, no question in my mind. Sorry, Tom, go ahead. No. Yeah, so. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Who, who did Cheney kill? What American What American whistleblowers did Cheney kill? I mean, that, that seems. We don't necessarily. We, we, don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't know. But I'm just saying, it's a, that seems a little. Uh, seems okay, a, maybe that's a little hysterical. But I, I still think that he felt. A, a certain amount of safety under this administration. Cheney really liked to bomb masses of people more than he liked to pick out whistleblowers and kill them. But go back, you didn't answer the question. Why did it win the Oscar? I wonder if it would have won if it hadn't been for the um, the Korean fracas. And oh, that's interesting. See, I have a theory, which is I think people who vote in that category wanted to give Laura Poitras a platform. It was as simple as that. I think that's true. And there could have been 10 better documentaries this year. I, think, I happen to think it was a terrific film. 
whether deserved to win, who knows? But it was a very, very good film. But people wanted her to give a speech, and I think that's why it won. Uh, I, I was nope. really surprised at her dress. I know that this sounds, fashion is, is superficial, but fashion is semiotics. Is that correct, Professor Lutz? Yes, ma'am. The dress, I don't know if you remember, but she looked like a totalitarian dominatrix. It was all black. <laughs> it had big shoulder pads, even though it was sleeveless. I mean, I'm just... I don't I'm just this is how I'm remembering it I'm on Google images right now <laughs> are you and the and the black gloves <laughs> and very strange get up I thought so how do we think Snowden is doing in Moscow somebody reported that he really loved Neil Patrick Harris's joke which was Edward Snowden could not be here for some treason <laughs> <laughs> he took you know he took a lot of <laughs> for that joke I actually thought it was a pretty good joke I thought so too yeah whatever. it's his job isn't it to tell jokes like that yes John Schlesinger the British director made a great film for the BBC called An Englishman Abroad about Guy Burgess who was one of the Cambridge spies in the 1950s who when when he was exposed fled and turned up in Russia lived out his days in Russia and was an English dandy really and you know wore uh, Savile Row suits and uh, very fancy English shoes. And I remember the last image of the movie is is Burgess, played by Alan Bates, walking across a bridge in Moscow. And you see him in a long shot. And the uh, the Gilbert and Sullivan song, For He Is an Englishman, from HMS Pinafore, is playing on the soundtrack. And it's one of my favorite images in, in all of movies. And if you get a chance, check it out. It's called An Englishman Abroad. And if it's not on Netflix, it's worth finding somewhere. Directed by John Schlesinger. That sounds, I will, I will definitely check that out. But it, I guess if you think about Snowden walking around in, in Moscow, you, you and he is an American. Uh, if he did this in Russia, he certainly would be dead. He'd be shot in front of the Kremlin on the street. He would be. Or irradiated in his hotel room. Exactly. Or stuck with a pointed umbrella with poison on it. Thank you to Judith Freeman and our producer, Jerry Gorin. We're grateful for the generous support of the Goldhirsch Foundation. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. We will see you next week.